Well, welcome to hermeneutics. This is a course that I believe is the most important course that you can take. And for some reason, it's not advancing. There we go. And when I do this course before a live audience, I usually have a few snickers or laughs and people think it's a joke. But in reality, I really believe what I say on the slide. Uh, not only because I think it's one of the most important courses in the seminary curriculum, but it's also very, very important individually, spiritually, that people get into the word for themselves. And I'm a strong believer that pastors, church leaders, disciplers should teach people how to study the Bible for themselves. I think the Bible was designed. In fact, we're going to look at a hermeneutical principle that states that, that the Bible is designed for the believer to understand it, and God wants to communicate through it. So it's the most important course for that purpose as well, just for spiritual growth in individuals. Plus, we're going to talk about principles that pertain to all of communication, and in fact, it goes even beyond communication. And I'm going to begin by giving you some examples of different areas where hermeneutics is involved. So I'm going to define it at the beginning here somewhat broadly, and then uh, we'll narrow in on a more precise description in terms of biblical hermeneutics. But hermeneutics is a very broad concept. And in that broader concept, this course will help you in a lot of areas besides biblical study. So I consider it a very important course. In fact, you might even say there are two very, very significant events in the life of a believer or a person, you might say. The first one being their salvation, where everything is changed as far as eternity is concerned. But almost as important is the ability to understand what God has communicated or learning how to study scripture. So I think it's a Big step in a believer when he begins to pursue understanding God's word on his own. So it's not just for you all, but I hope that you pass all this on to those that you are either teaching or discipling. So let's take a look at this broader concept of the science and art of interpretation. That's a simple description of hermeneutics. It's a science in that it has very well established principles that have been tested over time. Some of them have been tested for longer than 2,000 years because there's hermeneutics practiced in the Old Testament and there's hermeneutics practiced in uh, the first century in the time of Christ. And these principles have been refined and tested such that today We have these things that we can speak of in terms of hermeneutical principles, and we have some boundaries that they set in terms of studying scripture. 
But it's not a formula that you can just plug in certain things into this formula and get something as an output, but it's also an art. So it's the science and art of interpretation. Art is a skill. Like any skill, it takes time to develop. It takes involvement in the activity. So you don't just come by the ability to interpret overnight. In fact, it uh, takes, in some cases, to, to get very good at it. It, it takes uh, even years. So it's a science and art, and it's the science and art of interpretation. So that will be what we will be dealing with. Now, let's look at it in terms of the broader perspective. So hermeneutics in general, and in speaking of hermeneutics in general, let me use some illustrations in a broader way where hermeneutics is involved. I think it's somewhat obvious that you would expect that hermeneutics is involved in literature, in all of literature, in fact, all of communication, but particularly literature. And I've got an illustration from an article that came out in World Magazine. In fact, the date of it is 2005, so this article is a little old. But it's an article about an adaptation of some of the writings of Agatha Christie. And Agatha Christie is one of the most popular and famous authors. Not so much anymore, I don't think, because she's long gone, and I don't know how much of her writing is still very popular. But uh, she has sold over two billion books in uh, the course of time. So, very popular. So, in recent years, there was a TV series that wanted to make an adaptation of one of the books, or one of the series of books, I think. And the producers obviously had an intent of interpreting her writing. And the descendants of Agatha Christie, her children, approved all of the usage of the literature, so they had to talk to the people. And after they produced some, I think, pilot programs, they reviewed them, and they they noticed some things that they were very displeased with. And what they were noticing is that many of the characters, or at least one character, was very, very different. And not only was that character different, but went against anything that Agatha Christie would have uh, presented in her writings. That individual happened to be a homosexual, and that changes the story. That changes everything. And Agatha Christie was noted for her stories that involved lots of morality, biblical principles, very conducive for a young audience, and things of morality or immorality would uh, would not be part of her writing. So the comment was, well, we need to adapt and interpret her literature for a modern audience. Well, that's interpretation, but there's a problem there. The interpretation is a postmodern interpretation or an idea. In other words, there's a whole school of thought out there 
that interprets literature not from what the original author intended, in other words, the intent of the original author, but they approach literature from your truth is not necessarily my truth, my truth is not necessarily yours, and I could interpret what you write in a way that uh, satisfies me, whether or not you intended it in that way or not. So that's kind of an overarching kind of philosophy that permeates our culture. So it's not surprising that it is found in literature as well. And I just use it as an example because literature is written by certain authors, and those authors have a particular intent in writing. And certainly Agatha Christie had an intent in writing, and she's trying to communicate certain things and to inject things that she would not intend really violates the author and the author's literature. So this idea of authorial intent, I think, is very crucial and very important in the area of literature. And you'll begin to pick up, as I give you these examples, but I'll mention it right off the bat, that is the kind of the focus and the foundation to everything that we will do in biblical hermeneutics as well. We are going to search for what the biblical author intended to communicate. Now, here's another example from uh, government and law. If you're familiar with the Supreme Court, you understand that... Uh, the whole purpose of the Supreme Court is to evaluate, and I'll use the word, interpret laws that are passed by state governments or federal law. They are to evaluate them on the basis of whether or not they conform to the, the Constitution. That's the function, and that was the original intent of the Supreme Court. But you may know, if you're in touch with politics today, that there's an entire segment of our society that views the Constitution as a living and breathing document. In other words, a document that should adjust and should change and should be revised as culture changes. And from that perspective, uh, there are many examples we could give, but I'm just speaking broadly here in terms of hermeneutics. But there have been many laws that reflect things that are not in the Constitution, given this idea. In other words, other considerations were brought into the decision concerning things. The, the most famous is Roe versus Wade, the abortion law of the 70s. The whole idea is, well, we need to adapt to the culture in which we live in. It's an ancient document, outdated in some ways. So we need to update it in terms of how we interpret it and how we approach law today. Well, if you're a conservative, your viewpoint is that, no, you need to go back to the intent of the framers. In other words, the original intent, looking at the language of the text itself. Not international law, not human opinion, not philosophy, 
but what did the framers intent and limit laws to conforming to that intent? So there's two ways that laws are evaluated today, and it depends on the makeup of the Supreme Court. And obviously that's one of the big reasons why that's such a big issue in our culture in the recent election and will be in the next few elections as well. But what is involved, the point I'm making here, that's hermeneutics. That's interpretation. So it involves government. It involves law. It involves literature. You might think, well, does it touch on science? Well, yes. Interpretation is part of science as well. And that's my background. My background, well, I've got an engineering degree, so I've got a lot of science. And since I've become a believer, I've been involved in the creation movement. And a lot of the things that I do are involved in the study of science in, in preparation for creation talks and that sort of thing. And there is, even within science, two approaches in terms of evaluating the data of science. There is what is called today, in fact, science has drifted. If we had more time, I could kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of the the movement of science away from a perspective that I would hold, and most Christians would. But what is imposed on science today in interpreting the physical data is what is called methodological naturalism. That is an interpretive system, a hermeneutical system. And what it is, is in practice, methodologically, naturalism, which is really philosophy, or you might even say religion, naturalism is imposed on the interpretation of the data. And in science today, amongst the secular world, The only explanations that are permitted scientifically are those that can have a a naturalistic explanation. So all other data is excluded. Now, there's another approach of seeking truth no matter where it may come. So in dealing, for example, with historical science, which deals with things that took place in the past, and science can evaluate that, using scientific principles. In fact, there are two areas of science. There's observational science, that's science that's done in the present time, and there's historical science that deals with issues of the past. Well, the Bible deals with things of the past, and science deals with some of those, and there are conflicting worldviews today where the heart of one worldview is evolution, which supposedly they would claim is science. And they would say uh, using the Bible is religion. But I would say, and most creationists would say, no, we're seeking truth. And we're looking at all of the data, including the data that is revelation, data that God has revealed. And that is what we utilize to, to, to find truth. But what we have here are two systems of interpretation in conflict with one another. So interpretation deals with other areas other than just biblical interpretation. Deals in the area of science as well. 
So the conflict that the Christian has in, for example, the position of creationism or the reality of a Genesis flood or the age of the earth, those are all scientific issues. But methodological naturalism excludes any data that you can derive outside of a naturalistic explanation. So science is involved. Now, the nature of history is one of the key elements of history is that it involves interpretation. And you would expect that there would be two approaches in our culture, just as I've illustrated in literature and in law and in science. So also in history, there are two approaches. Now, the essence of history, and let me lay some of that out, the essence of history it involves data, obviously, and because of the nature of events, they only occur one time. You can't reproduce them, you can't, or or you can't go back in time and observe them, like a scientist would want to observe the data. You can't do that. All you can evaluate is the traces that are left by events. Now, the most significant category of traces include written documents, but they are simply eyewitness accounts in some cases or researched information that uh, recounts or tries to reconstruct these events. That would include, include the traces. But when it comes to ancient events where they, pre, they precede writing, like the Genesis flood, there are no documents there. So you, but, but there is an abundance of evidence. There are traces left behind by the Genesis event. Those traces of that event we call data. Now, I should have mentioned when I was talking about science as an example of historical science, but let me inject it here because we're talking about history here. Archaeology is an, is an example of the practice of historical science. What the archaeologist does is he looks at all of the data that he uncovers in a, an archaeological dig, and he tries to piece together, you know, here's a wall, here's, here's a gate, here's an entrance, whatever, and he's trying to reconstruct a culture, here's pottery, here are other artifacts, arrows, or whatever. And if he can find a document, that's, you know, that's gold. So that's historical science. So the example of today where historical science uses these principles of historical science would be archaeology. Another area is the popular series that you see on many TV programs, CSI, and there are very many versions of it. But it's reconstructing past events. Now, those are more recent events in terms of a crime or an incident or whatever. But a detective picks up all those pieces of data, those traces of the events, tries to reconstruct it. And if it's a court case, then you bring that data and present it in a courtroom. So also history, whether it be the reconstructing of a crime or just simply the reconstructing of the events, you, you take the traces of the events, but now 
that's just the raw data. Those events must be interpreted. That's hermeneutics. And if you have a different worldview, you can come to different conclusions concerning the scenario that those events represent or the reconstruction of that event. It may be different. And that, I think, is the main issue between those of us that believe in creation science and those that uh, simply believe in evolution and have a different interpretation of things like the Genesis flood and creation events. We are interpreting the events based on more data. We base it on revelation as well as the physical data that you can observe that are the traces of the events. But the point I'm making is hermeneutics is at the heart of history because you can't reproduce the events. All you have are the traces, and those traces of the events, that data requires interpretation. So how do you know that Abraham Lincoln ever lived? How do you know that George Washington ever lived? You don't see them. You didn't. You weren't there. So also with ancient events, you weren't there or we weren't there. But we have traces, and in some cases, like with Abraham Lincoln, we have written documents. And But even those documents have, have, are reconstruction interpreting the events, and sometimes they can even be presented from a different perspective. So all communication, that's kind of the bottom line here, all communication involves hermeneutics. So this is the broad idea of hermeneutics. And the cartoon, you're supposed to be laughing now, but anyway, I can't hear you. Uh, the wife doesn't quite understand football, so the husband is explaining a receiver, and she thinks that he's talking about a receptionist. So, receptionist. so he says he's the receiver, not the receptionist. Also, another area here is an important area, marriage itself. Most of the conflicts in marriage, and I'm an expert in this area because I'm not married, so uh, I know. You're supposed to laugh there as well. But marriage, obviously, some of the main problems involve communication or the lack of it. And the cartoon just simply kind of illustrates it. You always insist on having the last word. And she has the last word. Sorry. <laughs> but oftentimes, because we are different, men and women are, in fact, different. We think differently. We communicate differently. And I would say even understand differently. And in those differences, sometimes words are spoken with a particular intent from whether they be the husband or the wife. And they are received by either the the, the spouse, the other uh, husband and wife, whatever, uh, sometimes they are received differently and understood differently than what was intended. In fact, it's common for a woman to often respond, and I'm not picking on women, it's just the nature of the situation. <clears throat> he says, but you said this. And she said, no, but I meant this. And part of uh, marriage is learning what was the intent, not necessarily always the exact 
literal words. So hermeneutics is going to save your marriage, guys. So this course may be crucial in that area as well. Now, obviously, spiritually, hermeneutics is involved because God has communicated. It's a form of communication. God has revealed himself and has communicated. So, and he communicates spiritually as well as in written form. And we'll talk about the nature of scripture. There's a spiritual element to it. So when it comes to spiritual things, we have to take into account some of those in understanding what God is communicating. And just to illustrate a little bit of the spiritual area and getting closer to biblical hermeneutics, in Genesis 3, 1, we have the, the fall, obviously, and we have the first words of someone other than, than God. And you know that it's the serpent, and the serpent is communicating with the woman. And there is communication, and what the serpent is doing is he is reinterpreting or re-explaining the words of God to the woman. Did God indeed say, thou shalt not eat from the tree? He's introducing doubt. And uh, setting up a situation such that he will eventually tempt the woman to d- depart from the very words that God spoke. So the first issue of the Bible, essentially, is an issue of communication and understanding and hermeneutics, and in this case, a distorting of that communication in order to get a negative response. So it starts from the very beginning, and as a result of the fall, we are plagued with barriers to understanding one another, barriers to understanding the communication between man and God himself. So this is a broad area of hermeneutics, and we're going to refine it or define it more precisely when we talk about Biblical hermeneutics. Any conflicts that occur in the church, whether they, or in marriage, or just in the world. Matthew 5.19 calls upon us to be peacemakers. We kind of mediate. We are to mediate between conflicting communication, trying to bring people together. And oftentimes the basis of those disagreements are misunderstandings. Sometimes things are said intentionally, but a lot of time it is misunderstanding. Part of the work of a peacemaker is to understand clearly the communication and to properly interpret and mediate between two conflicting parties. So these are just quick examples. So Matthew 5.19, blessed are the peacemakers. So God can utilize us, and as we sharpen our skills in the area of hermeneutics, this will help us in interpersonal relationships and trying to bring peace within the body of Christ and in the world in which we live in. So that is hermeneutics in general. And let me just... 
skip to the scope of hermeneutics. In other words, more specifically, what are some of the things that we will be dealing with when we get into the details of the course? There's an excellent book that Schaefer uses for advanced hermeneutics, but I would recommend it to anyone in the area of hermeneutics. Most of these come from that book, uh, these areas that I'm going to deal with in terms of defining hermeneutics and how we come to an understanding of proper hermeneutics. Because uh, Robert Thomas, who's the author, he has made several observations and he's written a book in this area of hermeneutics. And the book is an attempt to basically refute some of the the movements in our church culture or theological culture that are moving away from traditional, sound, good, biblical hermeneutics that we will deal with in this course. And some of the things that he highlights and brings out, for example, just hermeneutics itself, the focus is in this principle of interpretation and even the word is redefined, so he is bringing us back if, in fact, we have fallen for some of these more recent hermeneutical texts where even the defining of hermeneutics has slightly changed. And when we're speaking of hermeneutics, we're, we are speaking about the principles for interpretation. And in some of these books, in some cases, there is a mixing up of interpretation with application. And there's a difference, and we'll distinguish that as we get further into the course. So in our discussion, when we speak of hermeneutics, we're talking about the principles. Now, I'll introduce you to another concept. The next one will be exegesis. That's the implementation of sound hermeneutical principles. And also, again, in some of these books, these more recent hermeneutical texts, there's a mixing up of not only hermeneutics and application, but there's a mixing up of hermeneutics and exegesis. So when I am using the word exegesis, and I'll define that later on, uh, I'm talking about implementing these principles that we call hermeneutical principles. We're implementing those sound hermeneutical principles. In fact, you'll see that this course is divided into three parts. I'll get to that in a moment. The first part, about four sessions, we'll talk about hermeneutics. I want to lay out these principles, first of all, get into them far enough so that now we can take the next step and get into the biblical text as soon as we can, because this is a course some of you will be doing um, assignments that will help you practice the use of these principles or the implement, implementation of these principles. And if we went through all of the hermeneutics first, there wouldn't be time for you to be able to get all of these in in the time frame of the course. So I've split it up so that we get enough hermeneutics that we can jump into the text itself and start implementing these hermeneutical principles in dealing with the exegetical process. 
And by the way, what I mean by exegesis is a technical term that involves the original languages. In other words, exegesis involves the original languages, but I'm going to give you the whole process, and I'll call it exegesis, but we'll do it from the English text. The principles are the same. The only difference is that technically exegesis deals with, if you're dealing in the Old Testament, Hebrew or those few passages in Aramaic, and if you're dealing with the New Testament, we're using the the original Greek. But I'll call it exegesis in a broader way in simply implementing these sound hermeneutical principles, uh, mainly to abbreviate Bible study methods, kind of a long title there. I'll describe it as exegesis. So that's what we'll deal with. Meaning, even the word meaning is used in a different way in some of these texts. We'll be, used, we'll be referring to the meaning of a passage or the meaning of a word, the meaning of a book. And what we're describing here is the a truth as intended by an author, the original author of that passage, an original author of that book, all the way down to the original author of a particular word that he uses in that book. So that's what we're talking about. Interpretation, the understanding of a truth intended by an author. Uh, closely related to meaning. But now this is more of the, the process of getting or arriving at that meaning. So it's the process of beginning to understand that truth as intended by the author. That's the bottom line. So biblical hermeneutics is more specific and obviously deals with the Bible. So the course will include two parts. That first four sessions that I described will talk about general principles. In other words, we will have 15 particular hermeneutical principles that we'll go over individually. The first few in quite more detail than the last uh, nine or so. I can't remember the number. I'll have to count them up. These are the general principles. These general principles will be applicable to any passage anywhere in Scripture. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. So these are principles applicable to any portion of the Bible. Now, later I'm going to talk about where people sometimes depart from these principles. And in churches and some scholars even, some Bible teachers, some pastors, sometimes they're inconsistent in utilizing these principles in their exegetical work. So we want to have a clear picture, and the first part of the course, we'll go through all of these principles. And then once we have the principles, we'll we'll go into the exegetical portion. But at the end of the course, after we do the exegetical portion, we'll come back to hermeneutics. So there are two parts of biblical hermeneutics. The second part includes what we would call special hermeneutics. And special hermeneutics, there are... 
a few areas that we'll deal with there, but primarily, not exclusively, but primarily special hermeneutics deals with particular kinds of literature or genres or types of literature. Uh, For example, in scripture, there's poetic literature. That's a particular type of literature. Poetic literature has its own special characteristics. So we will highlight and discuss those particular characteristics that make up poetic literature, as opposed to, let's say, uh, narrative literature, which has its own characteristics, some of them quite a bit different from poetic. Well, in scripture, we have a variety of literary types, literary genres that have their own individual characteristics, and we will treat them and look at them. So, in interpreting a passage, you also have to take into account the kind of literature, and now we apply these particular characteristics above and beyond the general principles. The general principles apply to any passage anywhere. Special hermeneutics applies to the particular literature that we're dealing with in any given particular passage. And we'll look at that area. But we'll save that because we won't need all of that uh, immediately. We'll look at it at the last third of the class. And I've got about four sessions on it as well, special hermeneutics. So we'll sandwich between those two. Once you have gone through the process of understanding these, or once you've understood these principles and are applying them effectively, the area of exegesis is the implementing of those principles. And I call it exegesis. I use a technical word, but uh, you could substitute their Bible study methods. That's what we will deal with in the middle part of the course. And it'll be a little bit over half of the lecture time. And that is all that we will deal with in this course, but in terms of biblical hermeneutics, it is defined, at least by one hermeneutical author, I'll give you that quote later on, it also includes not only the exegetical process, but it includes the utilization of the material that you have exegeted. We call that exposition. This can take the form of a sermon. This can take the form of a Bible study in a small group. It can take the form of a counseling session where you're utilizing the principles of Scripture that you have exegeted or understood, and now you're communicating them to an audience. So that's exposition. And hermeneutics can include that as well, but this course will not include exposition. You can take a a different course to learn how to preach if you're pastor and that sort of thing, or studying in that direction. That's exposition. So this is biblical hermeneutics, and everything that we'll do in the course will involve general principles, special hermeneutics, and exegesis, and then you can take your exegetical work and now communicate it to an audience. We call that exposition. 
here's that definition of that broad idea in terms of biblical hermeneutics, the broader idea, including the exposition part. Mickelson, this is one of the course texts that if you chose it, uh, it, he says the following. In terms of interpretation or uh, study of the word, it's the goal is to find out the meaning of a statement for the author. And I've got that highlighted. This is authorial intent. In other words, what did the author intend? That is the bottom line. In other words, everything that we are doing in hermeneutics, everything we're doing in this course, attempts to find out the meaning. In other words, what was the idea, the, the concept that the author was communicating? For the author, but also, and for the first hearers or readers. Every book of the Bible was written to a particular audience. And the particular author had an intent that he was communicating an idea from his mind to those original first hearers or readers. He had an audience in mind, and he's communicating to that particular audience. To fully understand a passage, you have to take into account, and in some cases, we don't know. Book of Hebrews, no, not the Book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, we don't know the author. Uh, perhaps some of the Psalms, for example. We may not know who the intended audience was, but in some cases, we have some specifics. The book of Philippians was written to a particular church in the city of Philippi that had particular characteristics and has a history behind it. And the more we know about them, and we utilize that data to help us to understand what Paul, being the author, is trying to communicate to those first hearers or readers. So this is a little flexible in terms of the second part of the statement, first hearers or readers. What was the intent? What was the author communicating? Now, when I deal with creation science and I'm dealing with Genesis, some of the views, for example, the days of creation, are they literal days, etc. I think if you take into account the original leader, or readers rather, it eliminates some of these theories that men have come up with in terms of how might we take Yom in Genesis chapter 1 as either literal solar days or long ages or periods of time or whatever. So take into account, that's just a kind of a side example of where hearers might come into play and help you make a choice in terms of an interpretive view. So the meaning as intended by the author as intended for a particular audience first hearers, whether they heard it audibly, like Jesus speaking the Sermon on the Mount, the portion of it is recorded in the the Gospels. How did those original hearers understand what Jesus was talking about? Well, you take into account who were they, probably almost entirely Jewish. There may have been some Gentile, probably if they were Gentiles, they were proselytes. So they had a Jewish orientation. 
Sermon on the Mount deals with the kingdom in large measure. So you go and figure out what was their understanding of the kingdom, because if you understand their understanding and what Jesus was intending by the word kingdom, it's going to help you to interpret the entire Sermon on the Mount. So that's the goal. No matter where we are, we want to find out the author's intent and how those first readers understood. And then we have that extended portion. And thereupon, and once you get to that, if you understand, that's interpretation. Now you can transmit it to a modern audience. And thereupon to transmit that meaning to modern readers. And you could even include uh, hearers if you're preaching a sermon. So everything that we do in the course, this is the bottom line. This is, this, everything that we do is designed to get us to this point. The author's intended meaning. So, I'll show you this slide over and over. This is the goal of the whole course, the goal of hermeneutics, the goal of the exegetical process is to eventually find out what the original author intended. Now, when we talk about the nature of scripture, one of the things we're going to talk about is the the uh, the involvement of the Holy Spirit. So when we're talking about Scripture, we're really talking about two authors. We're talking about a human author, but we're also including the divine author that inspired that human author to write and the intended meaning of the divine author or the Holy Spirit is not going to differ because we believe in not only inspiration but inerrancy. The Holy Holy Spirit is capable of superintending the human author such as that such that the human author writes down the intended Holy Spirit author's meaning. So that's the bottom line. So we'll look at two authors, but they won't be two different meanings, one meaning, one interpretation. So that's kind of the heart of the course. And kind of getting a little bit more expansive in our understanding or definition here. How do you do that? You use these exegetical tools that we'll lay out in the course. And there are three major ones. In fact, we will look at each one individually as a hermeneutical principle. But in essence, we determine the meaning from the laws of grammar. And when we get there, I'm going to explain the importance of the laws of grammar. Bottom line of my explanation is God is the author of language. Man did not put together language. We derive language from God himself. God chose to communicate to us through language. The laws of grammar are how language works. In other words, the things that make language work. So when God built into mankind the ability to think thoughts, and also the ability and all of the equipment to be able to communicate a thought in the mind of, of one person, to be able to communicate that to another person, 
God built all of that. So God is the author of language. He's the author of grammar. And all languages have some characteristics that are very similar. They differ in some ways. But So the laws of grammar are important because this is the way that God communicated. He communicated his word using language. So we have to understand the laws of language or the laws of grammar to understand what God has communicated. Now, we do this in English, and we don't think anything of it because we're familiar with English, but it becomes difficult if you're trying to communicate with somebody that doesn't speak English or a language that you don't understand. So all of these factors come in, and keep in mind the original Scriptures were written in Hebrew, primarily, in the Old Testament, and written in Greek, and that was the choice of God himself. So laws of grammar come into play. Now, we'll talk about translations as well later on, but basic laws of grammar. The Bible also is not simply a spiritual book, but it's set in a historical framework. And it's written to particular people by particular authors, we've already talked about that, who have a particular historical background in common, uh, whether it be an Old Testament passage. Now, their historical background is limited to the time that preceded the time that they lived. The New Testament uh, people had have a background that includes the Old Testament, in fact, everything up to the New Testament. And those facts of history contribute to the understanding of any given passage. So this is a very important area, and we'll have a principle associated with it. A third area that is extremely important is the framework of context. In real estate, you've heard it said, there are three major elements to good real estate. And if I ask you the question, somebody would say location, location, location. In hermeneutics, we could say something similar. The most, one of the most important principles, if not the most, is context. The second most important principle of hermeneutics is context. And the third most important principle is what? I don't need to say it, right? Context. So, context is very important, so we'll look at that as a principle as well. So, in determining meaning, at the heart of it is we will look at language, or we'll look at the biblical text. We'll look at the words and the, the sentences and paragraphs that were written by the human author as inspired by the divine author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, will take into account the historical background, the historical setting, the facts of history related to that passage, and we won't rip it out of the book in which it is found and the surrounding passages We'll take those into account in trying to interpret the particular words of the specific context that we're looking at. So laws of grammar, facts of history, framework of context.
We have a passage that helps us, kind of a course perspective, you might say, or kind of a biblical passage that guides us to reaching the author's intended meaning, 2 Timothy 2.15, and you're probably familiar with it. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Handling accurately the word of truth. So here's a strong encouragement to be careful in our Bible study. Being diligent. But not just, the English text doesn't convey all that the Greek text conveys. If you do a word study on it, you'll see the Greek word spudazo. It also includes kind of an eagerness, a, a zealousness as well, a, a not just not just an academic diligence, but somewhat of a you might even say an emotional involvement where you are eager and zealous. You're taking pains, in other words, lots of effort here, making every effort. That's budazo. That's being diligent. Another key phrase here is handling. Accurately. Now it takes two words to translate one Greek word there. The Greek word orthotomeo has the idea of, for example, as I illustrate in the slide there, in building a road in engineering, or an engineer rather, He's faced with getting from point A to point B, and in between we have hills, we have valleys, we have a forest. There might be other obstacles, but to have the most efficient road is to cut a straight path between two points, and the engineer will survey the land and come up with a way to minimize not only the construction costs, but also the distance. So it's cutting a path in a straight direction. That's the idea of orthotomeo, is handling accurately in that you are going straight to the meaning that is intended by the author. Don't get sidetracked. Don't don't let too much rabbit trails interfere, or don't go off into too many different paths. Get at the heart of the passage. Now, those rabbit trails may help you to get there, but sometimes we get sidetracked and the path that we take is more circuitous than it is a straight path. So, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Uh, All of this is ultimately for his glory. We interpret scripture because we want to clearly understand him And that brings approval from him. And it's going to take effort as a workman. Takes diligence. Not only does the word for diligent include that, but also just the additional phrase as workman, who does not need to be ashamed. In other words, I've done my work. I can stand before this audience. I have confidence that I can accurately present what God has said. I not only have confidence, but I can... Uh, preach or teach or whatever communication that I have uh, with confidence, not ashamed in, in any way. 
and handling accurately the word of truth. That's scripture. It is absolute truth. And because of its importance and because of its origin, its source, uh, we need to be motivated to be careful with it. So that's the scope of our course. And very quickly, let's take a look at the purpose. And the purpose here primarily of the course And there are a few that I have. And, and by the way, most of this on, is on your outline sheet that I emailed you. I'll hand out an email so that you can mainly follow where we're heading. And there's probably not enough space to take notes on it. So you might need additional sheets of paper. My intent in giving you the outline is guiding my thoughts, but also to help you to see where I'm heading and where uh, things are moving, and this will help you to see whether or not you ask a question in a particular area or not, or whether I'm going to cover it later on. So the first purpose is to, to lay a foundation for you that I'm hoping, particularly if you haven't done much exegesis, or probably most of you have done some Bible study, but to lay a more solid foundation for the rest of your lives. A lifetime of studying God's word. I think that's what we are called to do as believers in order to minister to a lost world. And this will give you a a foundation to get into the word, to understand it, to be effective in the ministry that God has called you and I to do. So this is, I think, a foundational course. This is why I believe this is the most important course in the seminary curriculum. And without apology, I include it as the first slide. So this is a foundation that you will build. And if you take other courses, all the other courses will rest on this foundation. Because if you're in the seminary curriculum, you're studying the Bible and if the foundation is faulty, then uh, then everything else that you build on it is not going to be as stable as you actually want. So we're going to try and lay a foundation for you. And as I said, this, this is a skill, so we'll develop the skill. Everything that we will do in the Bible study methods portion that I abbreviate by calling exegetical or exegesis, is intended to give you these skills. In other words, how do I come to the meaning of a word? I will walk you through a process of doing a word study. How do you do a word study? You don't just simply look up what it says in a commentary. There's other things that you can do. And we'll talk about all of those. So we'll develop these skills I like to use the analogy, I've also, all my life, have been an athlete, and in that, I have been involved in different sports, my favorite being football, and you don't learn how to play football by reading books about it. 
uh, also you don't learn the scriptures necessarily. You learn some things, but you don't learn it in, I think, the intended way by reading commentaries. But in learning uh, how to throw a football, for example, it, it's a particular skill. You don't pick it up and learn it right off the bat. It takes practice. You practice enough. You throw enough balls and you have somebody catch. And eventually you know how to throw a tight spiral. But it takes development. It takes repetition. So also the skills that we'll develop here, I'll encourage you to practice them. And after some practice, you become more proficient. And you'll also be more comfortable. In fact, a lot of things that we'll deal with will be very laborious, very, in some cases, even painful. Maybe not physically, but painful and hard. But as you do them, they become easier, just like any other skill. Uh, You'll be very awkward at the beginning, perhaps. And some of you have more experience than others, so it might, you're you're further along, so it's not, may not be as awkward. But uh, the purpose of the course is to help you develop those skills and give you those areas where you, in fact, begin to practice these skills. And another kind of side benefit and side purpose, it, there's tremendous satisfaction in getting into a passage, exegeting it for itself, coming to insight, the Holy Spirit impressing you of certain truths that he impresses you with. And in that, you... There's tremendous satisfaction that now that you go to the commentary, oh, I, you know, I, I, I saw that in the passage. You know, the commentary now is just reinforcing what the Holy Spirit has already taught you. So there's tremendous joy and satisfaction. And as you develop the skills, just, just like in athletics, people play sports because it's enjoyable. It's, it's, it's fun and there's, there's satisfaction and uh, a lot of benefits are derived from it. So, similarly with Bible study, we want to enjoy uh, that whole area. And it's to strengthen our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with God. He wants to communicate, and the process will get us into his word, and he wants to speak to us more directly. So that's a good place to take a break and just take some time here. I'm going to have last hour or so, I gave you a little introduction to hermeneutics in general. And I tried to demonstrate that we use hermeneutics all the time in lots of areas and don't even think about it. In fact, we seldom even think about hermeneutics when we're trying to communicate, but we're, we're utilizing it. And there oftentimes are not obstacles to it, so we don't have a need to think about it. But when it comes to some communication, like we're talking in terms of a different culture, we don't live in the first century. There are a lot of 
obstacles to understanding what is communicated, so you need hermeneutics and be aware of it. But the point I was making is hermeneutics should help you in lots of areas, and I kind of came to the end there that it'll even help you with your marriage. Can you imagine that? Because there's a lot of communication that goes on in marriages, and if you understand some of these principles, it'll help you there as well. So we looked at the uh, the scope of hermeneutics, tried to define it in terms of biblical hermeneutics. We're going to deal with biblical hermeneutics. I should have mentioned when I was describing that we look at the laws of grammar, the facts of history and the context or the framework of context, when we get into it, we will describe this process or this approach, and there's other approaches, but this approach is called the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. Now, some of the the textbooks, the uh, hermeneutical texts, will abbreviate it, and they'll call it grammatical, historical approach, but I prefer to call it grammatical, historical, contextual, because it includes the laws of grammar, the facts of history, and the framework of context. So that will be our approach at the end of the course. I'll give you an exposure to other approaches that differ from our approach. Then we concluded by looking at four different purposes to lay a foundation for a lifelong study in God's Word to develop the skills to find it more easy, I guess, to get into the biblical text, and that should translate into more enjoyable Bible study. And all that we do, we want to glorify God and strengthen that relationship that we have with Him. So those are four purposes for the whole course. So let's spend some time looking at why this is important, and we've touched on some of it, but let's look at it in a little more detail. First of all, for truth itself, God has revealed himself, and if you have a high view of Scripture, you believe that what God has revealed is not only inspired, but it's also without error. It is actually absolute truth. We talked about postmodernism. The culture that we live in is a postmodern culture, and one of the things that is assumed or thought in postmodernism is that there is not absolute truth. It varies, it's relative, but we believe that truth is absolute. If you have a high view of scripture, and we believe in the scriptures God has revealed himself. So it's very important to properly understand what that is that God has revealed. What is that truth? And these principles are designed to help you arrive at that truth. This is Jebel Musa, the traditional site where Moses was given the Ten Commandments and the children of Israel at the bottom there. You don't see them because it's a modern photograph. But Moses came down and gave them God's law or God's truth. 
and a few passages to highlight there concerning that truth. Exodus 20, 22, when the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. And we, with a high view of scripture, believe that what we're looking at is a documentation or the writing down of what God spoke. And I think in this context, God is speaking of the law, and he spoke that law, and Moses wrote it down, and we are the recipients of that spoken word. We don't hear it, but unless it's read to us, but we read it, and because of inspiration, we believe that it is from him. And some of these other passages emphasize that same thing. So this is God's word, God's word that he spoke in a historical context. And now we are the recipients of that revelation. So that's the truth. So we want to be careful with it because it finds its origin in God himself. One of the Deuteronomy passages that I had on the other slide, 524, you said... Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice. That's the historical experience of the children of Israel. We have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. So it was a dramatic demonstration of the glory of God. That's why they say they had seen the glory and his greatness. The midst of fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man. And this is so awesome that uh, there's no assurance that you'll survive it. So the text says, yet he lives, the person that hears it. So we have seen that God speaks with man, and yet man lives. That is why we want to be careful, is God speaks, and we're accountable. And uh, if so, God, if so, if God so pleased, uh, he could cease, causes to cease breathing at any moment. So this is a very important study that we will endeavor in, and we want to be very careful with it. And I'm going to try to do my best to try to communicate these principles so that they can be utilized by you in the rest of your life study. Just to lighten things up here, you may have seen this cartoon with the setting of Moses, Mount Sinai there. You can read the text for yourself, and I can see some of you rolling in the aisles. So, This course and this topic of hermeneutics is important, not only because of the nature of the truth that we're dealing with, but because there's the possibility of not understanding it or misinterpreting it, so it's for proper interpretation to grasp the meaning, and as we've been saying over and over, and I will continue to say it, the intended meaning of the original author, both human and divine. 
And I also just touched on it, but uh, the issue of interpretation is debated today. The whole areas of hermeneutics is under scrutiny and debate. There are several approaches that are antithetical to what uh, we will be doing here. And I think as a result of that, we have a lot of difference, differences in the church, even the evangelical church, a lot of differences within that whole community that uh, is different in terms of how people take passages, different views, different conclusions are drawn. So it's important that we have a good foundation of interpretation or hermeneutics to to be able to identify some of those. Not that we are always right, but at least we're in a position to make that judgment and maybe we might discover, oh, maybe I missed something here and maybe I need to evaluate what I've done in exegeting this passage and deal with it in more detail as I've uh, listened to somebody else. So there are recent changes. I want you to be aware of that. So if you pick up a more recent textbook, there might be some things that are slightly different from what we're saying here. And I'm what I'm giving you is not some of these more recent trends, some of these changes, but more the traditional tested hermeneutical position of uh, the most conservative of interpreters. That's why we account for the differences in different churches is because sometimes there are different hermeneutical approaches. And by the way, we differ from the cults as well. And when we talk about different approaches, we'll even talk about a particular principle of hermeneutics that they utilize. So as a result, we have different hermeneutical approaches, as I mentioned, and we are different from the cults. Just to kind of illustrate how words can be used and how words can carry different meaning, even the identical words, sometimes based on a perspective and even in a reading. I'm going to give you an illustration. I found this on the 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 uh, internet, and so it's got to be true, right? <clears throat> uh, it's, it's just kind of interesting how just by a different reading, you can come to two very, very different conclusions. The difference in the reading is sometimes where you stop in the reading in terms of a, a period or a comma. But two different meanings give what we can describe as two different views of life. So first I'm going to read this same thing and I'm going to read it back to you in a different way and I'm not going to change any of the words. It's just going to be a different reading from a different perspective and a different way of reading. So this is the atheist view of life so you'll probably agree with it. I will live my life according to these beliefs. And I don't have commas or anything because it's, it would distort the other reading. So I will li live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It is just foolish to think that there is a God with a cosmic plan 
that an all-powerful God brings redemption slash healing to pain and suffering in the world is a comforting thought, however. It is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. In a world with no God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of saving. That's the atheist view of life. Now, I'm not going to change any of the wording. I'm going to have, it's going to be different because I'm going to have different stops. But if you read it from the bottom up backwards, you'll come up with the Christian view of life. What I'm illustrating here is the same words sometimes can mean different things depending on context, depending on uh, punctuation, depending on other things. So let me read it backwards and see if it doesn't give you a Christian view of life. I am lost and in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you will be, is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea, oops, wrong way. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that an all-powerful God brings redemption slash healing to pain and suffering in the world. That there is a God with a cosmic plan, it is just foolish to think. Let's see. Oh, it is... Let's see, i got to stop there. It is just foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs. See the total difference in meaning? I didn't change a single word. All I did was have a different place of stopping the sentences. But same words, two radically different meanings. And what we are doing in the course is attempting to read sometimes the same words that perhaps a liberal may read. And when he sees those same words, he may think and see something different because he's coming from a different perspective. And we want to understand the bottom line, the intent of the author. That's just kind of a... Uh, kind of a cute little illustration that I thought you might enjoy. So, because of interpretation, we want to be very careful in exegeting any biblical text. And our growth is dependent on our understanding of Scripture. And this is clear from the Scriptures themselves. In fact, uh, the Scripture 
lay out for us what we might even describe as stages of growth. And some of the writers, even Jesus himself, uses uh, an analogy to communicate these stages of growth. He talks about a birth. Uh, This probably starts with Jesus himself in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, an analogy that he's using. And the Jewish leader, Nicodemus, that he's writing to is trying to understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about a birth. He's using an analogy. Nicodemus doesn't quite get or understand. He hasn't interpreted it yet. Jesus is guiding him in his understanding. So his thought is in terms of a physical birth, but Jesus explains that he is talking about a spiritual birth. But that is a stage of spiritual growth, that's the beginning. In other words, it has to start with a spiritual birth. And Ephesians, let's see. Yeah, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, and on and on through the end of verse 3. And the point that he's making is this idea, before this experience of birth, we are in a condition of death. So we need life. We need the giving of life. And in the same passage, Ephesians 2, skipping to verse 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's regeneration. So the analogy of the birth process is a picture of regenerating life. And there's passages that speak of it coming as a result, the Romans 10 passage of hearing the word. Now, it has a particular context, but I think we can draw an application and utilize it in this area as well. There's also the stage of infancy in Ephesians 4.14, same book. Paul says, as a result, we are no longer to, to be children. In other words, the stage of infancy is a stage that is normal and natural, but we shouldn't stay there. We shouldn't no longer be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming, and then he gives a process of getting out of spiritual infancy. Now, Paul reprimands the Corinthians for their failure to move on. They remained babes in Christ, you might say, or they remained in a stage of infancy. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you. You're familiar with these passages, I'm sure. I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but to as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. Stage of infancy. I gave you milk to drink. Now, he's carrying the same analogy of the growth process from birth, infancy. Gave you milk to to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. 
We are still fleshly. There's the more explicit condition from the analogy. And then uh, verse 3, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, in other other words, there's evidence of this, uh, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? The writer to the Hebrews, chapter 5, says something similar. Beginning in verse 11, he begins to deal with this deep doctrine, dealing with Melchizedek, and trying to draw an analogy or actually a truth concerning Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And verse 11, concerning him, I think he's referring to Melchizedek, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time, in other words, they have been believers long enough, by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need, like Paul, he says, need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So a stage of infancy that they haven't grown out of. And in this context, he's reprimanding them as well. Then verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, that's another stage, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And it's as a result of teaching, and in this context, doctrine, that the writer of Hebrews takes a break from to actually reprimand them. He's encouraging them to move on from the stage of infancy to perhaps a stage of spirituality, a spiritual man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes a spiritual man. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now, the things freely given, we learn those things from the word, which things we also speak. In other words, God has given them revelation, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, in other words, a man who lives in the flesh and is not consistently walking by the Spirit, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. So we want to grow out of infancy and begin to walk consistently in the spirit. And Paul describes that person as he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And he goes on and expands upon it. So these are spiritual stages of growth, and the goal is to reach maturity. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, therefore you are to be perfect, and in that context it has this idea of maturity, or in some verses even translate it that way, or completeness. Uh, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. 
So there's a stage of maturity that we are striving for. And as we learn the word, we grow in that direction. If we're young believers, we grow through a stage of consistent spirituality and eventually reach maturity. We never arrive until we go to be with the Lord. We don't reach glorification, but we can show some levels of spiritual maturity and continue to mature from there. So it's important for spiritual growth that we have an accurate and clear and even in-depth understanding of, of God's word. And theologically, it's important because in the process of growing, we're developing a biblical theology. In fact, that's the goal, is to think God's thoughts after him, to think concepts that he has revealed, such that our thinking, our theology is biblical. And it only comes as a result of study, and it comes over time. Now, we could even say that everyone has a theology. You could say that the atheist has a theology. It's not that he's lacking a theology. It's that his theology is an unbiblical theology. It It is antithetical to what scriptures teach. But it's a theology. He has a viewpoint concerning God, or he has a view on God. His view is that God does not exist. That's a theological concept, and that's his viewpoint. I can illustrate this with a Dennis the Menace cartoon where Dennis says, I'm going to learn to fly when I grow up, so I won't be scared later when I become an angel. Well, that's a theological statement. So even Dennis the, the Menace has a theology. It's not good theology, but it's a theology. And... A lot of Christians are in the church. Uh, They have a theology, but oftentimes it's not a biblical or even a good theology. And just to illustrate it further, I'm going to use kind of a chart here that will illustrate two different approaches to interpretation and how those two different approaches will end in two different areas of understanding. Now, we will describe the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. I'll talk about this later, but we abbreviate that and call that literal. And I'll specify what we mean by literal, but literal interpretation. That's just an abbreviation for grammatical, historical, contextual. In dealing with issues at the beginning of the Bible, we come to certain conclusions if we are consistent in applying the literal interpretation. So also, we're going to come to certain conclusions in dealing with the things towards the end. Most of the controversies in theology deal with issues at the beginning and issues at the end. And Sometimes they're also affected by everything in between, and we might describe a literal interpretation should produce an orthodox theology in all the other areas.
uh, outside of the issues dealing with creation science and the issues relating to eschatology. So if you have, I believe, a literal approach when you come to Genesis 1 or the flood narratives in 6 through 9, you're going to come up with certain conclusions. And if you're consistent and accurate, you should come up with the idea of a relatively young earth, a major issue in creation science studies. And in studying the flood narratives, you will be forced to come to the conclusion there had to have been in the past a universal or more specific a worldwide flood. Now this is going to be different. I'm going to give you a contrast here to another approach of interpretation. And throughout the rest of scriptures you're going to interpret and see that the scriptures prove themselves over and over to be inspired and to be inerrant. You'll have a uh, a biblical view or an orthodox view of the nature of scripture and all of scripture. You'll also end up with a very high view of God, a sovereign, holy, transcendent, loving, omniscient, omnipotent God, a very high view. This comes from a literal interpretation of Old Testament and New Testament passages. And what you're going to find, you are going to be forced to conclude in terms of eschatology that uh, the events are, in terms of the second coming, are pre-millennial. In other words, the coming of Christ is pre-millennial. You'll probably also come to the conclusion, or should come to the conclusion, that the rapture is pre-tribulational. So you'll believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. All of those come from a literal and a consistent interpretation of Scripture. Now, let's contrast that. A non-literal, and there are different shades of it, different variations of a non-literal, in other words, departures from the grammatical, historical, contextual, you can, and this, these are just examples of where you can come up with different ideas, in things pertaining to the early chapters of Genesis, it's conceivable that you can come up with a theistic, and that's kind of a broad category of origins, a theistic evolutionary idea or ideas. And you will also have a tendency to de depart from orthodox theology, everything in between, and your eschatology is going to be a different eschatology as well. So, the, I believe that the old earth view, you have to compromise hermeneutics and you have to compromise a non or a literal interpretation or grammatical historical contextual to come up with the old earth view. So also, you have to depart from the hermeneutics that we will be dealing with, a literal approach, to be able to support and hold to a local flood. And that, and that, by the way, is the majority view of the church at large. And in many, even evangelical circles, an old earth view of the early chapters of the book of Genesis 
is the predominant view, even in evangelical churches. To hold to a young earth is a very minority view, but it's a hermeneutical issue is the point I'm making. So hermeneutics has a direct effect on theology. A non-literal interpretation may yield an old earth view or a local flood view. This is where liberalism comes in. It, all of liberalism is a low view of scripture and a denial of some of the literal principles that we will deal with uh, of the grammatical historical contextual approach. And there's also a tendency to have a lower view of God once you depart from proper hermeneutics. Amillennialism stems from a non-literal interpretation. So eschatology is affected. Things at the end. If you are consistent in your hermeneutics, you cannot hold to an amillennial view. So also postmillennialism. Amillennialism and postmillennialism both take a non-literal approach. So the, the point I'm making here is just that theology is affected by hermeneutics, and in some cases very drastically, as those last illustrations of a non-literal approach illustrate. But all of theology is affected. And most of the dif- differences that we have within the body of Christ are not Strictly speaking, necessarily theological, what we're looking at is simply the conclusions of a different hermeneutic. And if you probe further, you oftentimes can can trace where a non-biblical theology or a non-biblical doctrine arises. And almost all the time you can trace it back to hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is very important. And a, obviously a proper hermeneutics is the goal that we want in this course. So, uh, well, a fourth reason that it's important is, is because of the blessing derived. So this is a, more of a practical reason. And for the sake of time, we won't look these up or read them, but If you wanted to read them, and I'm not going to even give you time to probably copy them down, you can come back, and they'll be on the website, and you can look at them there and copy them down look them up. But uh, various blessings in the Christian walk and the Christian life are derived, and when you read these passages, notice that they come from a proper understanding of Scripture or from Scripture themselves. In fact, 1 John 5.13 speaks of the assurance of salvation that we have, but it's derived from our understanding of Scripture. Scripture strengthened us, 1 John 2.14. We have power in prayer because now we understand God's will, and we can pray accordingly, and God answers prayer according to his will. We are sanctified, Psalm 119.9. Through the word, in other words, these are just blessings, kind of a list of them. The word gives us joy. It comes from his word. gives us peace. We have guidance, another Psalm 19 passage. And there's a multitude of other blessings that we could come up with a very long list with many other scriptures. And by the way, many other scriptures to support all of these other blessings as well. 
So this is the reason I use that first slide is the multitude of reasons why this course is important. It's a foundational course. I'll illustrate this with a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid is how we live. We could call that practice. In other words, the outpouring of our life, the activities, the words, the way we treat people, the way we act, our practice, the things that we do day by day has a direct relationship to what we believe, or we could say theologically, our theology. Our theology, unless we're inconsistent in our theology, sometimes we say we believe some things, but the way we act denies it. But if you are consistent in your theology, it will be reflected in your practice. So if your practice is unbiblical, then more than likely your Actual and practical theology is unbiblical as well. And theology is based on your exegesis or on your interpretation of scripture. And obviously exegesis is based on hermeneutics. So we want to give attention to hermeneutics because the end product of it is how we live. And that's kind of the whole endeavor of the church, is to teach good, solid theology that people can now orient their their practice or their lives. But before you can preach it, the preacher has to spend time exegeting. And that exegesis comes from his hermeneutical principles. And if you have a different approach, you can have different exegetical conclusions. A practical reason here, I've read several statistics, and they all are somewhat similar. I don't remember where I derived these, but in terms of understanding and retention of material that's communicated in communication, for example, if you simply hear a lecture, the average person hearing an average message or teaching or lecture of some sort, can generally retain about a 10% amount of the material that is covered. In other words, say a week later, if you were asked questions or maybe took a test on the lecture, you might be able to remember very clearly and accurately 10%. The rest of it is somewhat fuzzy. If you see... And here, in other words, if the message or the lecture is illustrated and you're seeing and you're hearing, then that uh, shoots the retention up to about 50%. And it varies, obviously. A good round number, about half of what you see. But now seeing it and hearing it reinforces it and it helps retention. So seeing, hearing, and doing, and what I mean by doing When you are actually not just listening to sermons or lectures on the Bible and not just reading text on a page of a commentary, you're seeing and you're hearing, but now you're actually exegeting the text, the retention jumps to about 98%. Now, 
most of my life, I have had a hard time memorizing scripture. I've gone through different phases. As a young believer, I tried to memorize scripture and spent lots of time doing that. And then I wandered away, came back. But I have also noticed that once I go through a passage exegetically, and I've done an adequate job on that passage, I have almost, and in some cases, can repeat the passage verbatim. In other words, I didn't intentionally memorize the passage, but through the process, I was able to retain almost the exact words. And that's as a result of doing. That's as a result of the exegetical process. So very, very important is this whole area of exegesis and hermeneutics that leads to it. Let's talk about prerequisites that will help us and prerequisites are things that are needed before we actually get into the process of exegesis. I think regeneration is needed because we're dealing with a book that has spiritual implications. And if we are dead spiritually, then we do not have the capability. In fact, that's what Paul says in that uh, that First um, Corinthians passage, the Natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. So the unbeliever does not have a capability of understanding spiritual things and will not be able to understand the spiritual implications of any given passage. What passages will do, the Holy Spirit can use them to awaken a person to their depravity, their lostness, their deadness, and the Holy Spirit can take those, some of those passages, and begin to illumine the unbeliever so he realizes that there's no other option than Jesus Christ, but apart from issues of regeneration or salvation, the unbeliever basically is lost when it comes to scripture, and I'm convinced that a lot of liberals, they may have degrees after their names and have a lot of training and background, but some of the conclusions that they come to are probably as a result of not being born again, uh, having uh, regeneration. So that's a prerequisite. Also, I won't stress this, but this is a good place to kind of emphasize the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that not only is the author of Scripture, but in the process of our understanding of it, through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, now we can come to an accurate understanding. So we, we can't discount or leave the work of the Holy Spirit out from... Uh, from the, the, the work that we do. So this is a spiritual endeavor. It's not just an academic endeavor. Sometimes seminary students get bogged down on this and, you know, it becomes an academic thing it, it, and we miss out because the spirit wants to teach us beyond the words on the page. So that's a second prerequisite. A third 
prerequisite, and we'll talk about this when we talk about application. In fact, we're going to expand this quite a bit. But it's important that as we study from the very beginning, we have to have an attitude of a willingness to obey. In other words, sometimes I get into the pattern of thinking in terms of, okay, how am I going to teach this passage? So I'm putting together the passage, and it becomes not only academic, but I'm thinking beyond what God may want to do within me. And I've noticed that sometimes I get get to a point in a passage where it just doesn't seem like I'm able to get over uh, the meaning of the text, whether it be a word or <clears throat> or a sentence or whatever. And sometimes I have to step back and say, oh, okay, this passage is intended to speak to me. And I, before I can communicate it, God wants me to make whatever changes I need to in accordance with what this is teaching. So I need to apply this passage personally. And on the occasions when I've noticed that, once I do that, uh, it's not unusual to have the passages kind of fall right open, and then I can move on. So obedience is very important, and like I said, that's application. We'll talk about application in the exegetical process. And a willingness to dig. A willingness, this this is going to take effort. It doesn't come easy. And we're going to have to discipline ourselves. Some of the things that I'm going to share with you in terms of process uh, will take time. So you've got to block out time and be willing to put the effort in to open up these insights that the Holy Spirit wants to give. So a willingness to work and go through the process of exegesis. So that's our first part of our introduction. I'm going to, let's see. Now what we want to do is move to the second part of our introduction. You might notice on the outline sheet, <clears throat> we've just completed that first part, and I've got two two pages, so everything that we'll start with, we probably won't complete this, but uh, we want to look at the nature of Scripture, and this will be kind of a second introduction or second part of the the introduction and when we speak of the nature of scripture let me start by talking about about prerequisites oops I'm kind of getting I can't seem to get what I want here in our little pyramid that we were looking at, with practice on the top that's based on our theology, based on exegesis and hermeneutics, hermeneutics itself is based uh, upon some presuppositions. In fact, everything is based on presuppositions, worldviews. Everyone has a worldview as well. We could talk about worldviews. 
In other words, what are those underlying assumptions or presuppositions that we have that dictate everything else in life? Well, so also hermeneutics starts with certain presuppositions. And we start from a particular set of presuppositions. We start from the fact that God does, in fact, exist. God is, in fact, real. And we believe that the God that we believe in is the God of the Bible. So we have a view of God that is based on Scripture. And we also have certain views concerning Scripture. Other approaches have different presuppositions. Some of them are different in terms of God. For example, the cults, they have a distinct hermeneutic, but they don't believe in the God of the Bible. Their God is a distorted God in false religions as well. Uh, Philosophers have ideas concerning the nature of God as well, and they have different views that dictate their hermeneutics and even their biblical hermeneutics. So liberalism has a set of presuppositions. So let's lay those out for us. The God of the Bible, uh, the God, we believe that God has spoken clearly. And we believe that the means by which God has spoken is through his word. These are presuppositions. So we have a different view concerning revelation than, let's say, the liberal approach. We believe that his word is inspired inerrant, and we also believe in a particular canon of scripture, and and by the way, the reason I throw that in is because we differ some uh, slightly from, say, Roman Catholicism in terms of a hermeneutic, and that stems from their presuppositions. They have a different canon. Now, they believe in the 66 books, but they add some additional ones as well. So we believe in 66 books that are inspired and inerrant. And that's huge. That's important. The liberal doesn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture in the same way we do. They redefine it, but it's not really the word that is inspired. They believe in an inspiration that includes uh, man himself, but not the word itself. Uh, they don't believe in inerrancy. So they have a different presupposition. They approach scripture differently. And that dictates, that's the foundation to their hermeneutic. But we start with believing that the word is inspired, inerrant, and we believe that there are 66 books in uh, the biblical canon. Also, part of our presupposition is a view concerning man, which is different from liberalism. We believe that man is depraved, and as a result of that, that's why we believe in the need for illumination and regeneration, because of the, the nature of man, that affects the way that he takes and understands scripture. So, we assume based on what scripture reveals, but we could look at it also as a presupposition. It's more than a presupposition, it's also the product of exegesis. But it is fundamental enough that we need to kind of state it. 
So in all of this, what I want to do, and I don't want to spend too much time, uh, we probably won't get through it all, but there's enough here that uh, I want to get through in terms of the nature of Scripture. What is Scripture like? And I do this to distinguish our view of Scripture from all other views, I guess you could say, and particularly the viewpoint of liberalism. So what is the view that we have as conservative, evangelical Christians that have a high view of Scripture and believe in the grammatical, historical, contextual approach? Underlying that is our view of Scripture. So what is Scripture like? We believe in the uniqueness. Now, that distinguishes us immediately from liberals. Liberals would classify the Bible as just another book of literature. may have some unique features, just like every book is unique. I mean, there's no two books that are identical. Otherwise, they're not the same book. Uh, so they have that view, but we would say that there's a radical uniqueness about uh, Scripture. So we we believe in a book that has a unique authority, different from any other writing, including any religious writing. We believe that the book that we are endeavoring to study has the full authority of God himself. And that is different, uh, except from the perspective that we come from. But in that authority, we also see that because it's based on what God has revealed, God has chosen to reveal in great diversity. There is a tremendous amount of diversity in the Bible. In fact, it is this diversity that sometimes is an obstacle in interpretation. And sometimes if we don't take into account some of this, it uh, doesn't allow us to come to a proper understanding. <clears throat> it affects interpretation. So let's look very quickly. Now, all of these are issues that you will deal with in a separate course so I'm just giving you kind of the highlights of a course called Bibliology, where you would look at all of these in more detail and develop all of these ideas more uh, more from Scripture and with more detail given to them. So let's take a look at this diversity. The diversity of scripture, well, first of all, in terms of time, the Bible is very unique in that it was not written in a short period of time as most books are. In fact, there are very few books that are written beyond the lifetime of one author. Whereas the scriptures are written over a long span of time, approximately 1500 years. So, millennia over time. And that introduces different issues in terms of interpretation and hermeneutics. But we take that into account and our hermeneutical principles set set boundaries and parameters to be able to properly take that into, into consideration. 
So we have a first book that is ancient, and it's not clear, I don't think, that we know exactly whether Job was the first book that was ever written or the book of Genesis. Job, from the internal evidence, it doesn't have any marks that date it, except for little details internally, seems to be written in a patriarchal culture, patriarchal time frame. And if that's the case, then it would, in fact, be the first book of the Bible, the book of Job. The book of Genesis, on the other hand, you have to think in terms of Moses, and there's a reason why we would hold to Mosaic authorship, and if it's Moses, then it would be after patriarchal, patriarchal time, and it would be more in the time frame of, obviously, Moses. And the question is, when in the lifetime of Moses? And I would put it while the children of Israel were still in Egypt, somewhere around or at least before 1445 B.C. So we have the beginnings of the writing of Scripture way back into ancient time, Far from our time frame, for sure, but even far from a New Testament time frame where we have uh, the, the books of the New Testament. And the last book, most scholars believe it's the book of Revelation around, and there's different views on the dating of that, but conservatives generally hold to 95 A.D., so just doing the numbers there, we have somewhere in the range of 1,500 Years over which uh, the whole Bible was completed, the 66 books. And that's extremely unique. Even religious books, most religious books are written in the time frame of the founders of the religion or very close to that time frame. So that introduces some issues and problems, but we take them into account in interpretation. So the diversity of scripture in terms of time. It's also diverse in authors. Again, most books are written by one author. Now, when I was studying engineering at UNM, University of New Mexico, there were some course texts where there were sometimes three authors that collaborated to produce uh, a book in one of the areas of study that the course was dealing with. But that's pretty rare overall in terms of authors. Authors, uh, the, the Bible is unique in that uh, there are approximately 40 authors from a variety of t- not only time frames, but also a variety of backgrounds. So we have many that are prophets. In fact, in, in a broad sense, you could say all of the writers are prophets or having a gift of prophecy. But there are specific prophets that are named as such. So we have prophets. We have kings that have written portions of scripture. David wrote much of the Psalms, about half of the Psalms. Solomon wrote uh, much of Proverbs and a lot of the other poetic literature. So we have kings that are authors, scribes, uh, Ezra as a scribe. Did some writing. There's a book that bears his name. We have priests that are authors as well, and you can go through the long list. Some of them would be considered historians, like Luke in the New Testament. 
Not only was he a medical doctor, but you could consider him, in the full sense of the word, a historian. We have apostles in the New Testament that write epistles. We have shepherds in the Old Testament, including David himself. I think Amos was a shepherd, and there's others as well. Statesman, you could include Daniel as a statesman. And he is the writer of the book of Daniel. Scholars as well. You have ordinary shepherds and you have scholars, so a variety of backgrounds. Kings as well as scribes. Ordinary as well as extraordinary people. All of these backgrounds contributed to the writing. All of them under inspiration. You could include Paul. Paul would have been considered a scholar in his day. And if he lived today, that we would classify him as a scholar. There's Luke, a medical doctor. Fisherman, Peter. And others as well. So, a diversity of authorship. Now, these not only introduce different issues, because when you're studying a particular book by a particular author, now you have to take into account who is that author and what are some of his literary characteristics in understanding what he is writing. So we have diversity of scripture, diversity of settings. So Bible passages and books find themselves in different, not only historical settings, but different cultural settings. Some of the passages in the book of Genesis portray a pre-flood setting, if you will. And in studying the details of those passages, it's a totally different world. The pre-flood world is totally different from the post-flood world. So some of the descriptions that we have are describing pre-flood conditions, different setting. We also have, in some cases, books that have a Palestinian setting, or you might say even a Canaanite setting, and in that context I'm thinking of uh, patriarchal time which the setting is the land of Israel. It wasn't called Israel then, necessarily. Uh, the, the culture was different. So maybe a simple way is to describe it as a Palestinian setting. Book of Exodus, some of the other books of the Pentateuch have an Egyptian setting, and the events took place in that geographical location. Some of the prophets, Assyria, they're addressing issues relating to Assyria and relating to settings in Assyria and also Babylonia or Babylon. Book of Daniel was written while Daniel is in Babylon. So the book of Daniel, the setting for that book is Babylonia. Persia later on, like book of Ezra, uh, Esther even. A Mediterranean setting, all of the New Testament, books that find their setting in different locations all around the Roman Empire of the first century, which would we could describe simply as Mediterranean. So we have different settings, and along with those settings come different cultures, 
not, a, not only along with the, the settings, but also the different times, we have different cultures. The children of Israel experienced a variety in their history of different cultures, and those different cultures had different effects upon them, and all these cultural issues need to be looked at and studied as well. So we'll take those into account. In fact, we will deal with the cultural principle itself. Books have different languages. We have we have uh, the majority of the Old Testament books are in Hebrew. There are some portions of the book of Daniel, large portions that are in Aramaic, and there's a few sentences or verses here and there that are in Aramaic, but the majority of of the books are written in Hebrew. All of the New Testament is in Greek. And again, just in contrast to normal or typical books outside of the Bible, most of them are generally in one language rather than two predominantly, and then possibly including the third one there. Each book has a different purpose. Every book is unique, and the purposes of each book are unique. We'll deal with the purpose of a book or purpose of a word or purpose of a passage. Uh, this is just the nature of Scripture in general, so we have to take that into account. There are different literary, well, in terms of purposes, to kind of illustrate that. We have a lot of material in the book of Kings that is very, very similar, in some cases even identical, to what we have in the book of Chronicles. Well, does that mean that uh, we don't need Chronicles? Well, obviously, if we have a high view of Scripture, we would say the Holy Spirit thought we do, so we have the book of the two books of Chronicles. In fact, uh, Chronicles even overlaps other books besides the Kings. Well, why do we have two different accounts of similar events? Well, I think that goes to purpose. I think the book of Kings has a different purpose, and the material is presented from that purpose. So also the book of Chronicles has a different purpose than the book of Kings. The, the setting and oftentimes the, the, obviously the Kings and the events are the same, but they're written from a different perspective, a different purpose. You could say the same of the four Gospels. Why do we have four Gospels? Well, you, you would answer that question by, by saying, well, we have four different purposes. There's some other reasons for different Gospels, but this is one of them. In fact, this is one of the major reasons why we have four different Gospels. We have four different purposes presenting Jesus Christ from four different perspectives. And again, there are some miracles that occur in all four of the Gospels. There are some miracles that are in Matthew and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and not in John, and there are some in John that are not in the three synoptics. There are some events that are in all, and and there's some events that are omitted, but the bottom line is we have four Gospels, four different purposes. We have history that has a different purpose than, in other words, like the book of Acts. And I'll, I'll develop all of this further when we get into not only special hermeneutics, but when we talk about some of these specific principles. 
But you need to take into account you interpret historical narrative different because it has a different purpose. I'm going to make a big point out of this. Sometimes some Bible teachers or students of the Bible derive theology or doctrine from the book of Acts or even the Gospels. I think that is a mistake because the book of Acts or the Gospels, the primary purpose is not to develop doctrine. Now, you have doctrine illustrated there. And you have uh, events that you can support certain doctrines from that. But you need to go to the epistles to develop your doctrine. And now you have sound doctrine that you might see reflected in uh, the historical books. And it all boils down to purpose. I'll develop that in more detail as we go along. And in fact, we have some conflicts, or at least some of us conservatives would have some conflicts, for example, with some ways that charismatics interpret some portions of the book of Acts, because they're basing some of their doctrines that solely come out of the book of Acts, and if that's the case, then those doctrines don't have a very good foundation. But if they can support them from the epistles... Now you have the foundation because that's part of the purpose of the epistles is to develop doctrine. Make sense? Yep, I see all of you nodding your heads, so we'll move on. Very good. Okay, so different books have different purposes. Every book is unique. Every book has its different purpose, even books that have the same or similar material. We have different literary form. Sometimes even within the same book. And an example of that, most of, or not most, I, well, maybe most, but many of the prophets, prophetic literature is a unique literary form. So the prophets would be categorized as prophetic in terms of genre and in terms of literary form. But much of the literary form is also poetic. So you have a mixture of prophetic genre with poetic, both in the same book. So literary form is different from book book to book. You have a lot of narrative in the Old Testament. You have the four Gospels and the Book of Acts as narrative. And so we'll go, when we talk about special hermeneutics, we'll spend... Uh, several hours just in literary form, but just a survey or a quick look at it. We have narrative material. This is the presentation of material in story form. And when we talked about the Bible, it's historical narrative. That is very different from poetic material. It has its own characteristics. We'll deal with it. But the point I'm making at this stage is you'll find poetic material in the New Testament. You find it in the Old Testament. You find it in prophetic works. There are five books devoted primarily to poetic literature. You have discursive material, a different literary form. You could call the the sermons of Christ as discursive. Uh, The epistles would fall under this category as well. It has its own unique characteristics. 
uh, and on. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time defining them. We'll look at these later on. You have prophetic material. You have parabolic material, parables, unique literary form. So the Gospels, you'll have a variety. You'll have discursive. You'll probably encounter poetry. You'll have narrative. And you'll have uh, the parables of Jesus all in the Gospels. So you have a variety of literary form even within any individual gospel. And then you have these different variety varieties of literary form in uh, the different books uh, throughout the Bible. So there's a tremendous diversity. And there's others that we could discuss as well. Also, every book deals with different topics. So the, the individual topic of, of individual books, there's a diversity of topics. All in all, you can put it all together and uh, you come to realize that in spite of the diversity, there is a tremendous amount of unity, which supports the idea of inspiration and inerrancy. And the Bible is unique in, in spite of being written over 1,500 years by over 40 authors in different settings, in different cultures, using a variety of literary form, you have a tremendous amount of unity with no contradictions. And that's one of the principles that we'll look at. So this makes the Bible unique from any other. We could also say, uh, in terms of specific areas, the nature of God is consistent throughout you see God introduced in the very first verse, and some of the aspects of God's nature that you find in Genesis 1-1, and it's full of the nature of God. Hopefully, I'll be able to use that as an illustration later on. But that nowhere in the rest of the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation, is contradicted. All that is done is added more depth to what you have in Genesis 1-1 and even Genesis 1 in general, the nature of God. So you have a consistency. One God, no contradictions. Nature of man, there's a unity there as well. The way of salvation is consistent. You can even look at a doctrinal passage. I'm teaching the book of Romans right now, and I'm in chapter 4. And that's the very point of chapter 4. Paul is illustrating the doctrine of justification by faith, apart from works, and he uses Abraham as his prime example, early in the narrative of the Old Testament. The way of salvation is the same. And the plan of history, you could look, there's a, a unified view of history. I'll probably give you a little bit of that as we get into some of the details here. We could call the whole Bible a meta-narrative, a story that has a beginning, it has a progress, it has a direction, and it's going to have an ending. And then all of the other issues of Scripture and all of the other books will fit into that meta-narrative. We spent a lot of time also speaking of the uniqueness of the Bible and its survival in the midst of many attempts at its destruction, but yet it has survived. And we have 66 books that uh, we have today that have survived not only the ravages of time, but attempts to eliminate and destroy it. 
And there's much we could say, but for the sake of time, we will move on. There's also, just I'm coming to a conclusion here, at least for today, an objectivity that is unique amongst the Bible. The writings of Islam, for example, they glorify and elevate Muhammad uh, to a very high position. And I won't say any more about that, but the real history is very different. But the Bible is objective in that all of the heroes of the Bible, they're presented with all of their flaws. So there's an objectivity in terms of the nature of man and uh, the mistakes that were made, the mistakes of the early church. They're all chronicled. Well, not all of them, but enough of them that you get an accurate and an objective view of reality, which also speaks to inspiration and inerrancy, supports that idea. So that's the uniqueness of Scripture. And why don't we stop at this point, since we're running out of time, we'll pick up and talk about the literary nature of Scripture. And the essence of what I say there is not only is Scripture unique in that it's different from any other book that has ever existed in all of the history of mankind, but it also has some of the characteristics that are similar to other books as well. So it has a literary nature as well. And we'll pick up with that next week. Let's see, how do I get out of here? Well, for today, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Steve, you want to lead us in there? Yes, sir. Father in heaven, as we approach your throne of grace, we are so very thankful for how you reveal yourself in your word. We're thankful for the rich legacy of faithful believers who over many years have learned and recorded the principles of sound hermeneutics and exegesis and have passed on these principles by teaching and writing. We're thankful for Schaefer Theological Seminary, its teachers and leaders, for the opportunity to learn how to accurately handle your word so that we might be diligent to show ourselves approved as workmen who need not be ashamed. We ask for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit in helping us learn these principles and to use them for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all. We'll see you all next week.